the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you who don't know about the show, the show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about either politics, history, religion, and of course with me, history is always baseball. So we're going to be talking to the former manager of the New York Mets, probably the the greatest manager in the history the Mets, Gil Hodges, kind of on a side, but so Davy Johnson's going to be on, and Congressman, former Congressman Michael Grimm, who's running for election in a primary on June 26th. Now, I'm very pleased tonight to have, we have a guest on, Peggy Eason, who's in the studio, and of course, my wife Beth is here. Hi. <laughs> hey, Peggy, how you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Now, Peggy, um, you're a fellow member of the Civil War Roundtable with us, but you're also a professional singer. Yes. And you got a concert coming up. When is that? Uh, this concert is going to be on July 20, uh, Saturday, July 28th. At the Laurie Beachman Theater, which is inside the West Bank Cafe on 407 West 42nd Street at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Doors will probably open around 1.15 p.m. And if you check our website at uh, Connors and Sullivan Facebook, we'll get it to you. Now, Chris, how does somebody contact us with Facebook? How do they like our Facebook page and why should they? Oh, well, you should like it because there are a lot of good things there. You can find out what's going on with the show. If you missed a program, we can link you to our past shows and some of the great interviews you've had on in the last, well, let's say many years. I'll do that. Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. That's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. That's our Facebook page. On Twitter, we're Connors and Sullivan. You'll be able to find us there. Or CNS Attorneys, actually. CNS Attorneys. That's at CNS Attorneys on Twitter. Now, where does somebody ask this question, you know, by email for the for the show? You can easily email us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. I'll say it one more time if you want to write that down. Connors at gmail.com. Okay, now, Peggy, you mentioned earlier you had a question about estate planning. So you're here. Why not ask the question? Okay. And I don't have to do email. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I have a question. If If I'm in the middle of a divorce and I have not changed my will yet, would you advise me to wait until after the divorce to change my will, or would you? could I do it 
uh, uh, right away. Because if he die, if I die, he the will would had not been changed, and that might, might cause some problems. Yeah, I would recommend if you're in the middle of a divorce that you change your will. Now, yes, if you're legally married, your spouse has the possibility of putting a claim against your estate. But depending on the circumstances, especially if you're in the middle of a divorce, the judge, the surrogate, may not allow the claim saying that you you know, were separated and that you weren't living together as husband and wife or, or whatever. But you know, here's the mistake some people make. Well, wait till after the divorce. Then something happens to the one spouse. Let's say they have no will or they have a will leaving everything to their spouse. You talk about a laughing heir. You have a will that leaves everything to your husband. You get in a car accident. Mm -hmm. You're in the middle of a divorce. You pass away. Who gets the money from the lawsuit? Your husband. Because that's what your will says. Now, again, your spouse, if you're in the middle of divorce, may have a right to put a claim in against the estate. That's called a right of election. But still, that claim would be limited, and it's in the discretion of the surrogate's court mm-hmm. under the circumstances whether that claim should be a lot, uh, allowed. And I think if somebody had started, especially if they were the plaintiff in a divorce action, in other words, they were the person who started the divorce, then I don't think that claim would go through. But at, very, at the very least, a claim of part of the estate is better than the entire estate. You know, and, and I've seen it happen. You know, husband and wife, they're having problems. They're estranged, whatever. One of them passes away. They have an old will that leaves everything to the spouse. You talk about a laughing heir. Mm-hmm. Do a will in that circumstance. It's, it's, you never know what's going to happen That's in this right. world. You probably want to do a will after the divorce anyway, so this way you're jumping the gun a little bit. But, yes, do a will. You can always, you know, that's one of the myths that, uh, you know, if, if you don't or if you have a will, that you have to leave your husband and wife something. No, they can put a claim in your against your state, but let them put the claim in. And under the circumstances, the claim may not be allowed. And even if the claim is allowed, it's going to be a lot less than leaving them your entire estate. Mm-hmm. You know, ordinarily, we don't want laughing heirs to be out there. We don't want somebody to celebrate because, you, you, you know, you passed away. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So, Beth, do we have we have a couple of email questions out there, right? We do. Um, this is one from Joshua. It says, Hi, Mike. If my only child is financially irresponsible, how can I ensure that he will not squander his inheritance? Can I design a payout scheme through my will? Should I set up a trust? If I set up a trust, then who will control the money, and how can my child receive money from the trust? Okay, well, that's another good question because it happens a lot more in today's world than it used to. Basically, we need to have a person who acts as the trustee. In other words, a person in charge of the money after you're gone. Now, you can do this through your will or you can set up a trust now while you're alive. The advantage of doing in a trust while you're alive is it'll avoid probate. The assets in the trust won't go through the court. If you do it through your will, it will go through your court, but will go through the court, but it'll have the same effect in the long run. Assets that you put in trust for, let's say, your child can be controlled by a trustee who can be anybody over 18 not convicted of a crime. So usually we recommend family first. Does it necessarily have to be family? No, it could be your best friend. It could be, you know, but again, it's usually family. Anybody over 18 not convicted of a crime, U.S. citizen. So not that hard. I, I know sometimes very hard to pick the person to be the trustee. And of course, we always need a backup plan that the trustee can appoint a successor and things like that. And some people ask, well, should I have a bank as a trustee? Ordinarily, in my experience, I would say no, because a bank doesn't have as much flexibility as you would like in today's world. You know, in, in the old days, let's say you had a uh, you know a bank officer who was 
trustee, and he was with the bank for 20, 30 years. You could talk to him. You got to know him. He got to know your family. He got to know the circumstances. But in today's world, and, and it's just the way the world has changed, people who work in banks, they're at one bank for three years. They're at another bank for three years. And banks have become bureaucratic. And it's not that easy to get money when you need to get money out of a trustee. So I would not recommend a bank or a trust company to be a trustee. Uh, to be honest with you, and it may be self-serving, I would recommend an attorney over a, a bank trustee or a law firm, you know, a successor, because it's a lot more flexible if the child needs money. Yes, you don't want the child to waste money, but at the same time, if the child really needs money, you want a person that can talk to your child, can talk to and say, hey, I need money because I'm trying to buy a house and I need a down payment, or I need money because I need to buy a car. Why do you need to buy a car? Well, I've got this job, but it's hard to commute you know, by the subway, public transportation, or whatever, and, and, and buying this car, I just want to buy a modest car. Buying this car is going to save me hours every day and, and make sure that I get to work on time. Well, then I would go ahead and say, okay, let's buy that car. But, you know, you have to have flexibility. Again, we recommend family first. If you have another child, that's usually number one. And, you know, even sometimes if children don't get along, they're still brothers and sisters. There's still a family loyalty there. So that's our first first recommendation, keep it within the family. Speaking of email questions, each week, Kevin McCullough on his show takes one of our email questions. And well, well, Kevin, what is the question of the week? Every single week, we promise you that New York's most informed estate care and elder law lawyer will join us and answer one of your important questions that you've uh, given them at 718-238-6500 or sent in at mikeconnors at gmail.com. And Mike has returned. Mike, this week's question says, my uncle lives in my grandpa's house and my grandpa deeded the house to his children before he passed away, but gave my uncle something called a life estate. Can my mom and her siblings make my uncle sell the house now that my grandpa has passed away? Signed, Maria. Mike Connors, what does Maria need to do? Well, I don't know if she needs to do anything. She shouldn't technically be able to sell the house because her uncle has a right under the life estate to use the house for his lifetime, maybe even rent it out, depending on how it was worded, so it can't be sold without his consent while he's alive. He, in effect, owns that house for his lifetime. He can't sell it to someone else, but he he owns the house for his lifetime. He has a right to live in there, and that's the way, in this case, Grandpa set it up, and I guess he was entitled to do it that way, obviously. Well, if they do feel there's a grievance there, is are there any recourse uh, by meeting with someone like your office? Uh, the only way would be in, in such a way if the uncle, the house were being destroyed, he was letting it waste, he wasn't paying the real estate taxes, uh, you know, the house is completely falling apart and he wasn't doing anything about it, th then they might have a grievance. Otherwise, you know, assuming the grandpa was competent, and I, I would think it does sound like a reasonable plan. You know, I let my uh, son live in the house as long as he's alive, and then it goes to all my kids. That doesn't sound like somebody was unduly influencing him or forcing him to sign something. Right. So she and her mom are just going to have to find another alternative. Well, friends, maybe you've got a similar question. Maybe you face similar challenges. There are no better voices and minds on these matters than Connors and Sullivan, and that's why uh, Mike Connors is uh, such a resource. 718-238-6500 if you want to call their office and get clear answers to your questions, 718-238-6500. You can also email them at mikeconnors at gmail.com, mikeconnors at gmail.com. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thanks again to Kevin McCullough. Don't forget to listen to his show each Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer. Coming up next, we have former Congressman Michael Grimm, who's running to take back his seat, Staten Island and Brooklyn. 
very dynamic personality. He's on next. Then for those of you baseball fans, Met fans like, you know, me, we got Davey Johnson coming up after that. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As most of you know who listen to the show, we occasionally delve into the world of politics. And with me right now is former Congressman Michael Grimm, who's challenging the current incumbent, Dan Donovan, in Bay Ridge and Staten Island. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Okay. It looks like you're having fun running. We are. We are. We're having a great time. The, uh, the enthusiasm, the excitement out there is palpable, so I feed off the energy of my constituents. Okay. Now, why, why are you challenging an incumbent Republican? Well, you know, one reason is because he hasn't done a good job. I mean, um, you know, right here in Brooklyn where your office is, there were signs um, about a year and a half ago being hung in the different uh, vendors' um, windows saying, missing, have you seen this congressman with Dan Donovan's picture? And it's because he doesn't really show up. And then when you just look, you know, what has he been doing? People are asking, what has he done? He hasn't passed one substantive bill, not one, uh, in three years. So... You know, he's been an absentee member of Congress. And when I spoke to him and said I was going to primary him, he simply said, you know, give me two more years. I'm going to retire anyway. And that's the problem. He's retired in place, and he's just counting the days until he can get another pension. Now, you said he hasn't passed any bills. He's in the majority. You know, sometimes I think people take a cheap shot at somebody who's in the minority of whatever legislature. And, yeah, you can't get a bill passed. How active were you in passing bills when you were in the Congress? Well, there's the clear, you know, there's a clear distinction, and I want to also mention. I think there's two aspects to being a good congressman. One is what you can do legislatively in D.C., and then your constituent services here back at home. So, speaking specifically about being in D.C. and passing bills, I passed eight in my name. There were three because of the, of my legal troubles at the end that got put into other people's names. So it would have been eleven bills in four years. 
some of which were national-level bills. They were very important bills. Um, one was the national reform of, of the flood insurance program uh, that helped keep homeowners across this country in their homes that were living in flood zones. So I was extremely active. Um, but at least those eight bills, including Sandy, which created you know, $60 billion to rebuild after the storm, uh, another major legislative accomplishment. So I've had many of them. And again, he has failed to pass even one. The difference, though, is when I was in office, we had President Obama, a Democrat, a fairly left-leaning Democrat, I think anyone would agree. And we also had a Democrat Senate, and I was still able to get all those bills through a Democrat Senate and onto the president's desk and had a Democrat president sign them, where you know Donovan has the opposite. They have the House, they have the Senate, and they have the White House, and he still hasn't been able to pass one substantive bill. Now, I've seen a lot of commercials running on Fox News backing Dan Donovan. Why? Well, I think that that's what's backfiring on him. If you ask why I'm ahead um, so much right now, I think it's clear it's because— The people of Staten Island and Brooklyn are very smart. They're very savvy. They pay attention. And they don't like to be lied to. Dan Donovan went far to his left before I entered the race. He was pro-amnesty. He he actually co-sponsored two amnesty bills. He said on PIX11 that he did not agree with deporting people. Um, And he went down the line against President Trump on all three legislative initiatives. And the president has only asked Congress of three things. That was repeal Obamacare. Danny voted no. He asked them to ban sanctuary cities. Donovan voted no. And then he asked for the tax reform bill, and Donovan voted no. So now you're seeing on Fox News that he supports President Trump, and he votes with President Trump, and he wants to ban sanctuary cities, and he wants to deport the the um, the uh, dangerous illegal aliens and so on. It's, it's obviously not true because his voting record completely defies that, and I think that's what's backfiring on him. Even though he wasn't around much and didn't work very hard, now that he's lying about his record, has really upset people. Now, where's the money coming for these commercials? Some of it is his own. A lot of it, uh, though, for example, there's one ad being played on Fox News all day and all night, as well as some mailers being put out by a group, and I forget the full name, uh, Hospitals uh, Greater New York or something, and they are rewarding him for his voting against repealing Obamacare. So it's a pro-Obamacare pack that is also anti-gun. So it's anti-gun, pro-Obamacare uh, it's one of those super PACs that doesn't really disclose where all their money is coming from. It's the, it's the typical swamp. It's exactly what President Trump said needs to be drained. And because of his vote to not to repeal Obamacare, he's being rewarded. You're running hard. You said you're ahead? Yes, I think we're well ahead. Um, and I get that because I'm out there every single day. I meet with uh, people, whether it's at the diner, whether it's at a CVS, whether it's at a shopping center. Um, I constantly stop and speak to people, and we have overwhelming support. I feel like... Again, people got used to having a congressman that worked as hard as they did. And and that's what I prided myself on, going to work every day and resolving problems. So even when it wasn't in Washington passing bills, here in Brooklyn, in Staten Island, when people had issues that they couldn't get resolved, for example, a veteran for 24 years couldn't get his benefits. He was destitute. He became homeless. He became addicted. He had lost everything, including hope. We were able to get all of those benefits back. We got a lump sum plus benefits going forward. And he said to me, crying when he hugged me, you didn't just give me back my life. You gave me back my dignity. Those are the types of mountains we moved on a regular basis. We were very attentive to our constituents, and we worked as hard as they did. And that's what they're used to, and they're not getting that with Donovan, and that's why they want me back. Hurricane Sandy, you were all over the place after the aftermath. Yes. And that was right after your election, or right? Actually, during the election. During the election, yes. In fact, I was criticized by uh, people in Washington and people on the campaign that I stopped all campaign activity when the when the storm hit and said we are now in in full 
um, recovery mode. We are going to help people get back on their feet. Don't worry about the election. That'll work itself out. And I've always believed that. It's something that Guy Molinari, uh, our former congressman and also of this district, um, taught me day one. He said, if you work hard, don't worry about campaigning. People will, will always recognize that, you, that you're doing your best and you're working hard for them and you're getting results, and they'll reelect you. So don't worry about everything else. And that's true. You know, when we went into Superstorm Sandy, we gave it a thousand percent, whether it was delivering water to people that hadn't evacuated or whether it was bringing a shovel and mucking out their basements. Whatever it was, we did the best we could, plus getting $60 billion to rebuild, build the seawall, all of those things uh, that needed to be done. Um, and now people remember that. And they say, you know, you were there for us when we needed you. And even with the flood insurance bill was another big problem. People thought they were going to lose their homes until out of 435 members, I was the only member that had the courage and the tenacity and the ability to get that bill passed over the objections of the Republican leadership. Had to work across the aisle with the Democrats to get that done. Um, and I'm very proud of the fact that that was actually signed into law and actually changed people's lives and saved their homes. And now people are in their homes today because of that legislation. If somebody wants to get on the Internet, if somebody wants to find out more about your campaign, where do they do that? MichaelGrimm2018.com. So they can literally just my name. It has two M's in, in Grimm. Michael, G-R-I-M-M, 2018.com. Michael, where'd you grow up? Well, I was born here in Brooklyn. Okay, very humble beginnings. Both my parents were born and raised here in Brooklyn. And then when I was young, we moved to Staten Island. And then after I served in combat with the Marine Corps, when I was about 23 years old, I moved to Staten Island. So I've been in Staten Island now about 25 years. I think it's worth mentioning you served in the Marine Corps. Where were you? Well, I, uh, my first duty station was 29 Stumps, as we call it, 29 Palms, California. And it was good because it was desert training, and then I got sent over to the Persian Gulf. So I was in the first Gulf War and served in combat with the Marine Corps um, before coming back to Camp Lejeune. And then um, went reserve status and was able to get my, uh, my college degree in accounting with a minor in finance. And after that, uh, I got picked up by the FBI. It was I, I applied to the FBI when I was very young, and I was one of the youngest in my class. Um, I had a great experience being a special agent with the FBI. I was 25 when I went to the academy, and I was a special agent. Worked my last five and a half, almost six years deep undercover all over the country, so it was a real blessing. I know one time you told us a story about when a wire popped out, of course, of the old days when there were wires. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, I believe it or not, when I first started in the Bureau— they still had something, I think it was called a Nagra or something like that. It was reel-to-reel recording device that was quite large, uh, and you'd have to put it like in the small of your back. It would be the only place you could hide it and tape it around your waist. Um, talk about antiquated. Now the, you, know, you can put a bug in almost anything, um, but back in those days you wore traditional wires. So most of my undercover work, I would say almost extensively, I did wear a fairly traditional wire. Just the difference is we didn't have those big reel-to-reel things to secrete. But we still had a, a metal box, probably two inches by two inches, that was recording digitally. And you still had to you know, hide that in certain places. And it, it was um, undercover work was very, very challenging. It was very, very stressful. But I think it, it prepared me for uh, the stresses of politics. Look, I served in combat and I served undercover. But the most dangerous thing I've ever done was uh, go to Washington as a U.S. congressman, especially as the only Republican representing all of New York City. <laughs> you also told a story one time about, I think you were in combat, you were lost. Yes, that's true. Um, I got, it was due to my own fault. Um, I just wandered in the wrong direction. I was uh, trying to follow, uh, it was nighttime and it was very dark. And so I was trying to follow stars, and I wasn't very good at it. And everyone that knows me growing up, I had no sense of direction. So I got separated from my unit. I was outside the wire, as we call it. 
and began to panic. And I, we, I knew we were on the front lines, and I was not far from enemy territory, and I just kept thinking about getting captured and tortured and what I was already thinking of my training to deal with being tortured. You know, and obviously that's not something you want to do. And then the only thing I can think to do, because my heart was beating out of my chest, I was sweating, and I, I wasn't panicking, but I was pretty close to it when I just dropped to my knees and started to pray. And I got to tell you, it was um, it was a, a bit of a surreal experience. That was the first time that, it was not the first time, but one of the few times in my life that my faith really took hold of me. And I was so grateful that I had my faith because it was almost as if God put his hand on my shoulder and said, relax, you're not alone. And you'll be fine. And I calmed down and I, I was able to just breathe normally and hear something other than the beating of my own heart. And I heard the, um, the generators that, uh, from my camp humming. And I walked towards the sound of the generators until I heard what you would think was a scary sound. But for me, it was the greatest sound I ever heard. And that was the locking and loading of a 50 caliber machine gun um, by, the, by the United States Marines that had guard duty saying, freeze, don't move, put your hands up. And I'm, you know, I remember saying, don't shoot. It's me. It's my, it's grim. It's grim. It's grim. And what are you doing out there? You're going to get killed. So they, they let me back in. They didn't shoot. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We got a primary coming up June 26th. June 26th is the primary. We're very excited. I think we're going to have a, a very big win. I think you're going to see once again, all the pundits and the, the, uh, the elite in the media and in DC, uh, get their clocks cleaned, and we're going to win once again. You know, almost every election I've had that have been a big election, whether it was my very first election in 2010, um, they said there was no no way I could beat the incumbent Democrat, and we did. And then in my last election in 2014, they said I was dead man walking, no path to victory, and we won by almost 13 points. So I think you're going to see another big victory that's going to shock uh, the elites and the pundits and the media. You're a member of the conservative party. Yes. What What's up? So that that's interesting. So the primary is not just a Republican primary. It's a conservative primary also. However, what makes this a unique primary, this is a write-in campaign. So if you are a registered conservative, it's extremely important. We're going to reach out um, and give out stamps because you actually have to write my name in Michael G. Grimm. And again, there's two M's in Grimm. So we're giving out stamps so that people can just stamp the name in. It's pre-inked, so it's very simple. It's, almost, it's a little keychain. Um, so it's, it's easy to use and you'll just stamp my name in the box where it says write in candidate. You fill in the oval just as you would if my name appeared, you fill in the oval completely and then you stamp the name in and that's, that's considered a write in campaign. And it's very important. Don't take it uh, lightly. If you do write in one, one typo or one misspelling could invalidate the, uh, the ballot. It could. And that's why my full name, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, middle initial G, last name Grimm with two M's, very important. But again, if, if you have the stamp and you use the stamp, you're sure to get it right. So you have to fill in the oval and, and, and write the name in or stamp the name in, and then uh, your your ballot will count. And um, listen, right now we have a tremendous amount of support from the conservative party. You know, they want a congressman that's going to support the America First agenda that President Trump has laid out and that they voted for in 2016. And obviously, um, Donovan hasn't done that. He's been anything but conservative. He's F rating with the NRA. He's pro-amnesty and his votes against the president on everything from tax reform to repealing Obamacare and banning sanctuary cities speaks for itself. So no matter how many ads he runs on Fox News, it's not going to change the fact that he's been down the line against that America First agenda. All right, June 26th. Don't forget to vote. I'll be there. Thank you, Michael Grimm. Meet you at the ballot. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. 
This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. The new breed were crazy. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now with me is a former Major League Baseball player. He was, you know, in in many World Series games. He was a Gold Glove winner three times, an All-Star second baseman four times. In 1973, he was one of three players on the same team who hit more than 40 home runs, which included Hank Aaron and Darrell Evans. But he's more remembered for his accomplishments as a manager than a player. And you may say, hey, how could that be? But that's our next guest, Davey Johnson. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, Mike, I'm doing great. I'm here at home with my two dogs and uh, we're having fun. Okay. What kind of dogs do you have? I got a Burmese Doodle, which is a Burmese Mountain Dog and Poodle mix, and all he wants to do is be petted. And uh, uh, Jeremy Shorter pointed that all she wants to do is run. <laughs> you hear about Burmese Doodle? Yeah. Barking. Okay. Okay. Maybe maybe we'll have our dog bark back or whatever. But he's not in the studio today. All right. You had a you know a great playing career, but even a, a greater career as a manager. Now, how did that start? How did you get involved in managing? Well, actually, when I was kind of beat up at the end of my career, uh, I got an offer to manage the Miami Amigos and be a player manager. Uh, and uh, I thought it was a great opportunity. And I, I got to pick the team. I had a couple of trial camps, one in Miami and one up in Sanford. And I had a great time. We were so good, the team I picked, that we were about 15 games up, and the league folded after 80 games. So it was fun. Okay, now eventually you got hooked up with the Met organization. How'd that happen? Well, actually, it was funny. Uh, McIlvain called me. He was the director of scouting for the Mets, and he said, how would you like to manage in the Texas League? I said, well, man, that's great. My mother's from San Antonio, and all my 
relatives are there. It'd be great. And then I found out it was Jackson, Mississippi, which is 13-hour bus ride from San Antonio. But uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of prospects, but we won the Texas League championships. And they wanted me to go back there. And then I said, no, it's too, too, too much on the bus rides. And so I rode for one year, and then I managed the uh, team in Tidewater. And then they gave me the job in New York, 84. 1984. Now, the Mets were not in good shape in 1983. No, I mean, I, I really liked the, the talent that, you know, when you manage two years in the minor leagues, you get to know all the talent. And I always thought that was a priority for being a big league manager. Manager in the minor leagues, you know, you know the talent, and then it's easy to get the best team on the field. fact is I got in a whole lot of trouble with Dusty Baker and Don Baylor because I said that was a prerequisite for me to manage in the minor leagues. And they all got on me and said, uh, you, you're, you're make, making everybody prejudiced and disgusted. They just went from coaching into big leagues. So it was funny. So uh, 1984, the Mets come into a resurgence. Things get exciting then at, at Shea Stadium. How, how did it feel for you to be you know, managing the major leagues and your first year out, you got a winning record? Well, you know, the funny thing, Mike, uh, the first year we were outscored by 18 runs. Now think about that. And we were 18 games over 500. I knew I had some deficiencies in the bullpen on one side because I like to divide the bullpen between A and B. And uh, if we were ahead, I'd use my A side. If we were behind, I'd use my B side. And when we got better as it went along, we went from 90 games to 98 games to 108 games uh, when we uh, resolved all the deficiencies in the ball club. Now, one of the things I, I admired you as a manager, you weren't stuck with the book, especially when it didn't make any sense? Well, you know, one thing about, you know, when you manage 25 guys, the biggest thing for chemistry is when every one of those 25 guys knows their role. And if, you, if you're a bench guy or a bullpen guy, you know, if you do really well, you, I'll expand the role. And that creates great chemistry. And when you have great chemistry on a ball club, you win. And it's all about everybody knowing their role. That's the main topic I wanted to get Cost. Well, I guess we'll skip forward to 86. One of the greatest teams ever put together. You won 108 games, uh, a couple of heartaches in between, but you did get to win the World Series. Yeah, and that was so much fun because um, for me, you know, uh, the manager of the Boston club was the catcher when I was in double manage and Earl Weaver's my manager. And he called for a pitch that hit me in the nose. And so for me to come back and beat him when they we were two outs, two strikes, and two runs down, come back and beat him, uh, that was the greatest thrill of my life. At that point, did you have any confidence or any hope that you were going to win that game? Well, you know, we never lost confidence. Uh, you know, it, it was a great ball club. I mean, we had a lot of characters on that ball club, as you know. Uh, but we never lost confidence. I mean, you don't win 108 games and not have confidence that you can come back and win any, any game. 87, a little bit of a disappointment. 88, tough loss to the Dodgers in the playoffs. No question about it. You know, you know, the thing that I remember most is that uh, the switch hitter uh, was up before, and he actually struck out. The umpire didn't call a swing on a strike. And, uh, and uh, then – I. I could have gone to Randy Myers in the bullpen. I thought things were going good. And then when associate the home run, that was a shock to everybody. You know, momentum, you know, just changed. It was an unbelievable time. 
one of the most uh, uh, un- uncomfortable times of my life. Did you ever think after the 86 World Series that you wouldn't be there again with the Mets? You know, I thought I was going to be there for a lifetime, to be honest with you. And because, uh, you know, you know, I tried to uh, block some trades and, you know, you know, I was an army brat and I just believed that my general manager is my boss and whatever he wanted to do, I would try to support it. I did disagree on the Mitchell trade and I disagreed on the Dykstra and McDowell trade. But um, as it came out, they all blamed it on me, but I would never have traded those guys. I love that team. And I thought I was going to be there a long time. I guess it was because I was a little obstinate, you know, and I, I was very opinionated. I guess that's one of my faults. Is that the reason you were let go by the Mets? I guess. You know, I never smoothed the owner. Uh, I know a lot of baseball men uh, have a good relationship with ownership uh, when they take the job. But I always, like I say, Army Brown, I just believe in the general manager is my boss, and I just do whatever you want to do and try to support it. So where'd you go from there? Oh, man, where did I go from there? I guess I get, went to <laughs> Cincinnati, Cincinnati and yeah. shot, and they fired me there, and then went to Angelos, and then I went to L.A. And um, Yeah, but you had success with Cincinnati. Yeah, and uh, I thought I'd be going to be there for a while, but uh, Marge shot. She also demanded that I get married to my wife, which I was. she was traveling with me because I wanted her to see if she liked the game of baseball and could handle that. Because we had three kids, she had three kids, and uh, I was going to marry her. But Marshot said, "If you don't come marry her, you're not coming back." So I married her, and then she fired me anyway. So what the heck did it matter? <laughs> well, she was a little bit of a character too. But uh, okay, so that's the reason. Uh, don't you... even get me started. Don't even get me <laughs> Why started. Why not? Well, <laughs> well, you know that's a whole other story. I mean, I got messages during the game that if we didn't pull this game out, uh, my wife wouldn't go home with me, and it was always from Shotzi, lips and licks from Shotzi. <laughs> Washington Nationals. Yeah. What age are you in when you're managing the Washington Nationals? Uh, I think about 69. And I, I didn't expect to go manage them. Uh, uh, they called me up, and I was getting ready to go to golf tournament out in Tahoe. And uh, when they come up, and so I came up and tried to straighten things out up there, and I think we did a pretty good job. Next year we won 98 games, and and then uh, uh, you know I had one more year there, 2013, and um, we they, I went to I remember going to San I mean to uh, Africa to taking my wife on an Africa trip, and I came back and they signed Soriano instead of some left-hand relievers. That upset me, but uh, and we only won 86 games, so. But I knew I was gone after that year. You know, I, I filled the role that I was needed to fill up in Washington. Now, when you start looking at the stats and you're looking at managers and their winning percentages, outside of Earl Weaver, I don't know anybody who had a higher winning percentage than you did in you know our, the later part of the 20th century going into the 21st century. Well, you know, I, I don't care much about I don't care much about personal goals. You know, I, I feel very fortunate. You know, I got elected to the Hall of Fame in Florida and Texas. Also in uh, Baltimore and New York, but uh, it was all about the players that I had and the, and the job they did. So it doesn't bother me. I'm not anywhere going anywhere further. Okay, well let me ask you this: What was your biggest thrill as a baseball player? You know, as a player, maybe getting the last hit off Sandy Koufax, and it was funny because in 1966 uh, they were going to the ballpark, 
and said, would you believe the Dodgers in four straight and beat Drysdale? And the next day, Koufax was pitching, and he never did pitch against the American League clubs because he didn't want to in spring training. And um, uh, he, he, he was pitching me tough the first two times up, and then I got a base hit in the seventh inning, and they took him out. And I'll never forget it. I went up to him next year in spring training in Vero Beach. I said, Sandy, hey, man, how you doing? Great to see you. I'm sorry you're retired. Guess who got the lap to hit off you? And he said, when that happened, I knew I was washed up. <laughs> so that was that was that was one of my big moments that kind of got shattered. <laughs> yeah, but how many games did he win that year? Twenty six. Yeah, he was unbelievable. He was, you know, he wasn't that big. He was like maybe five ten or something. Came right over the top, but he had a great riding fastball and a great curveball. He was outstanding. Now, as a manager, I guess your biggest thrill had to be that first World Series championship yeah i mean i had a great ball club and and you know i told them in the spring we're gonna not only win we're gonna dominate and we did but you know i uh had learned a lot from Shaw cook and his bet book percentage baseball in baltimore and uh putting guys on base in front of your productive hitters and that's where i set my lineup with dykstra and bachman in front of hernandez carter and strawberry and we did dominate and it was fun and uh you know, I I'll always, that's always going to be my favorite team. And, you know, a lot of those guys have come on hard times. Some of them uh, are doing better now, and I'm happy about that. You, you mentioned a book that I haven't heard about for years, Earnshaw Cook, Percentage Baseball. I mean, he had certain things that back then were revolutionary, like don't bunt as much as you should. And uh, I also thought he, he talked about moving pitchers a little bit more uh, often, taking them out sooner, didn't he? Yeah, the one the main thing I didn't agree with him, he said – if you have a 250 hitter in the lineup, and I'm having lunch with him, uh, don't ever let him swing 2-0. and I said, these guys are human beings. That's the best pitch they might get. Um, but he, he did come up with uh, the on-base percentage before Elias or anybody. And I really used that. And I thought it was a, probably the best thing he ever did. That's true because I mean, going back as a kid, I remember you know, like it was. What was your batting average? Your your on base percentage was a statistic that really almost nobody took notice of. No, nobody did to learn Shaw Cook, and then I started using it, and I said, "Man, give me on base percentage because I know who to hit one and two in front of my run producers," and I used that my whole career. I even tried to do a program for Weaver, but he threw it in the garbage can. So what the hell? That didn't work out. He he used five. At bats for a hitter, and I said, Earl, it's an uh, unfavorable chance deviation. You need 500 chances to predict plus or minus 5%, but he didn't, he didn't buy that. Well, I guess he had his own success, though. You can't argue too much. He was the greatest. He was the greatest. I mean, Earl Weaver would hide in the runway and smoke a cigarette and say, I can't look. Tell me what happens. Did he walk or did he get a hit? He was, he was the best. He was a tremendous competitor. But biggest lunacy I got from Earl because he handled the pitcher staff better than anybody I've ever seen. Why did you write your book? What's the point behind your book? Well, my wife wanted the money for her charity, SOS, which is Scholarship for Scholars. And it's all underprivileged young girls that get a scholarship in college. And we give them mentors and a lot of money extra to make sure that they're successful and don't have to work too hard to get through college. And She's had nothing but success, and it's a great charity. So I'm happy, and I hope the book sells so that she can make more money. Okay, well, very good. That's, you know, a good cause. Now, what do you want the reader to get out of the book? Well, I hope some young players will understand, you know, the things I went through and 
and then I hope some young managers will understand that it's not always roses and pictures whenever you go to work in the big leagues and you have to deal with it. And I hope they get something out of it and positive. I always like to deal in positives. Okay, so what's the name of the book? Davy Johnson's My Life in Baseball and Beyond. You know, uh, you know. It's it's hard to go back and relive some things because there's not all good good times. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, every baseball player, every manager gets fired for the most part. A couple of exceptions <laughs> here and there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, everybody gets released except for you know some of the superstars and guys who get well, lucky. I've been released and I've been sold to Japan and I've been I've, everybody's and I've been traded. Everybody's done everything with me. You brought something up. What was it like to play in Japan? It was great. You know, I was fortunate. I got to play for uh, with a team with Saharo, who was oh, really? Babe Ruth over there. Yeah. And that's a trivia question. Who hit behind the two greatest home run hitters of all time when they broke Babe Ruth's record? And it was me hitting behind Henry Aaron and Saharo. And my manager was a guy named Nagashima, who was all-world third baseman over there. And uh, he, he, was, he was something else, too. What was the difference between Japanese baseball and Major League Baseball at that time? Well, I always thought that there was going to be a lot of players over there that could play in the big leagues. But I was over there, and a wave of only Americans came over to Japan. And uh, I played for the team that was like the uh, Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers rolled into one. The only team that was on TV, uh, Tokyo Giants. And they were the greatest. And... uh, I really enjoyed it. But you know what? They believed in the shuto over there. Now, shuto is a fastball in on your hands. And they always pride themselves on the shuto. And so you have to learn how to take that pitch and also hit the inside fastball, which I thought was good. And you came back to play in the major leagues for a little while after that. Yeah, I came back and I actually, it was a funny story. I came back and I wanted to play for the uh, uh, Philadelphia Phillies because I thought they had the best chance of winning. And I called up Paul Owens and I said, Paul, I'm ready to come back and play for you. I think I need to make about 100000 He said, I'll give you 50 If you make the club, I'll give you 100 I made the club. He gave me 100 And uh, he was the best. I like Paul Owens. I think he was one of the best GMs in baseball. One last question. What players do you remember most fondly, you know, in your managing careers? What guys do you – and we're not going to say one or two or whatever, but what guys do you remember very fondly from their playing careers? I love Dwight Gooden because when the first time I saw Dwight Gooden in, in Kingsport with uh, Randy Myers and Floyd Yeomans, when they threw a bullpen, Dwight was on, on the plate every pitch, and Randy Myers and Floyd Yeomans were all over the place. And when I asked Dwight, I said, how do you help grip your fastball? He said, I grip it across the scenes while I get up, and I grip it with the scenes while I lateral movement. I said, that'll work. But my favorite player of all time was probably Barry Larkin for the Cincinnati Reds because he could hit one, two, or three, and he was just a team leader. He was just a uh, perfect human being. I loved him the most. Thank you. Davey Johnson, Life in Baseball. Thank you for sharing your thoughts at Connor's Corner. You know, hope the book does well for your wife's charity. Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. 
Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on Monday, June 25th at the Three West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Tuesday, June 26th at Pocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. You know, Davey Johnson brought up an, an old memory for me, uh, Earnshaw Cook, who wrote a book, Percentage Baseball. And he wrote it in the, the mid-1960s, early 1960s. And he was one of the first guys who said that the bunt was very overrated and not a good percentage play. And he had all sorts of ideas then. It's very interesting that Davey Johnson picked up on it. And maybe that's why he's one of the winningest managers in the you know, later part of the 20th century into the 21st century. So, again, a little bit of nostalgia, Earnshaw Cook, percentage baseball. You might want to pick that up if you believe, you know, find out where Moneyball comes from and all these things about on-base percentage and, and stuff like that. In the meanwhile, getting back to estate planning and elder law, we're having seminars coming up in a couple of weeks. We're going to be at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, on Monday, June 25th. The first seminar is going to be 11 o'clock in the morning. The second seminar, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Tuesday, June 26th, we're going to be in Staten Island at one of our favorite places, Bocelli's Restaurante, 1250 Highland Boulevard. That is right next to our Staten Island office. So on Tuesday, June 26th, we're going to be in Staten Island at 11 o'clock, 3 p.m., 7 p.m. If you want to call for reservations, give our office a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. One of the reasons we want you to call, we want to, we want to have the room set up right for the right number of people. And, you know, Beth, sometimes people ask me, and maybe you should answer this, what do they learn at the seminar? What can they pick up? The seminars are great, and I'm saying that because there are a whole bunch of other people there. Um, sometimes... 
often we don't know how to plan for ourselves. We don't. Sometimes you don't know the right questions to ask, um, and frankly, sometimes you just forget about. Oh yeah, I forgot. I have a tree farm in Louisiana. Um, when the other people, Michael, go through all the, he touches on just about everything that you you could think about, but then people start asking questions. And um, you learn so much by listening to you answer the other people. And also you realize, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the same boat with all these other people. Because you shouldn't feel bad if you don't know what you want to do. Um, hardly anybody does. So you just go in when you do, if you do decide to go in and have a consultation, well, it's a chat. If you're speaking with Mike or one of the other attorneys, you're chatting with them about your assets, your finances, um, sometimes your, your various situation, your family situation, your health situation, and um, you realize at the seminars, well, you know what, this isn't so bad. You know, I, I shouldn't be scared of this. This isn't so bad. So I think that's the best takeaway most people have you know okay so i think we're running out of time same time next week david kincaid is saying goodbye to us thank you for listening to ask the lawyer with me mike connors accompanied by my wife beth and our friend peggy eason bye-bye We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all call connors and sullivan attorneys at law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in brooklyn midtown manhattan queens and staten island 718-238-6500 that's 718-238-6500 or visit their website connorsandsullivan.com The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.